Welcome to the new healthcare economy where everyone wins for a change. Employers, consumers, primary care physicians, outcomes, shareholders, even our communities all win with costs dropping 20 to 60%. This unstoppable direct contracting movement bypasses the big middles with their crooked game boards, devious rule book, rigged dice, and purchased referees. I'm Rob Barshop, and I'm glad you're here. Okay, we're back again with Dr. Malcolm Kendrick. Dr. Kendrick, last time we spoke, we discussed some counterintuitive things about the cholesterol hypothesis and LDL and statins. And we talked about the thrombogenic hypothesis, which you explained very nicely. So we're not going to go over it again. But today we want to talk about what should we be doing for heart health to be wise. And I want to tie that in with what appears to be some things we're seeing on the embalmer tables, which are massive blood clots on people that are younger who have died from, not from COVID, but from apparently these booster shots. So maybe we're veering into some territory we don't need to, but we'll talk about it. Let's go ahead and get into it. It looks to me like there's a lot of free things in your book we could be doing. The first we start with is add more sun in your life. It'll add 10 years of life and the melanoma impact is almost de minimis. Can you talk about adding sunshine in our lives? Yeah, I'm saying beginning to sound more and more like a raving lunatic, probably to some of your audience. Uh, Salt's good for you. (laughs) Cholesterol's good for you. And now sunshine is good for you. Um, uh, I looked at a study from uh, the International uh, Journal of Epidemiology some years ago. And what they showed was that, uh, looking in the United States, that people who had greater sun exposure were... were, um, were 50% less likely to get prostate cancer, where women were 50% less likely to get breast cancer, and men and women between them were 75% less likely to get colorectal cancer, just just for three examples. There's another study came out in in Denmark, and they looked at women who sunbathed a lot versus women who avoided the sun. It was over a 10-year period, and they found that women who sunbathed a lot had an increased life expectancy that was the equivalent of in reverse of smoking 40 cigarettes a day the main difference was in cardiovascular disease now these are again facts now everyone's terrified of malignant melanoma Uh, i hate to say it was another fact which is there's very little to know to perhaps inverse evidence that um that sun exposure causes malignant melanoma I mean, there's no doubt in fair-skinned people that it causes certain types of skin cancers, basal, basal um, uh, cell skin cancer, squamous cell, rodent ulcers, blah, blah, blah. These are local ones that can be removed. So they do exist, but when you're talking malignant melanoma, the association is small to non-existent to reverse. And I'm, I'm quoting, there's a study done in the British Journal of Dermatology where a bunch of dermatologists look at the evidence and they said, we have to rethink this. Has it been rethought? No, it just carries on. It's just a fact. If you expose your son to the skin, you will get malignant melanoma and die. I'm going to say that you don't put on sunscreen when you go out. No, well, sunscreen, let's not get into this. There's another one. Sunscreen causes skin cancer. Um, uh, let's move on to the other fact, which is, okay. which is, which is that, that sunshine, 
Because one of the most important things in your heart health is, is a molecule called nitric oxide, which was discovered to exist in about 1995. Um, and um, no one thought it could exist in the human body because it's a really reactive substance. It's a kind of free radicals, the freest of free radicals. It's the freest of freest of free radicals because it was discovered essentially uh, to be the thing that makes nitroglycerine explode. Um, and if you take nitroglycerine as a tablet, it's called glycerol trinitrate, it causes the release of nitric oxide in your blood vessels. It causes them to widen and open, gets rid of angina, and, and it's fantastically important for, for your overall health of your, of your blood vessels because also it's an enormously potent anticoagulant agent, stops blood clotting. So it's got a huge number of, of benefits. And it was discovered about eight, nine years ago by researchers that if you go into the sun and you expose your skin to the sun, you synthesize nitric oxide in your skin and it hangs around for a bit. It lowers your blood pressure by, by more than, or definitely more than salt increases it. It lowers it by more than most blood pressure lowering agents, but it has all sorts of other effects that are all beneficial. Sunlight is gigantically beneficial for health. It's POS, is it the number one? I don't know. It's, it's, it's up there. It's up there in the top two or three things that you can do to remain healthy. You know, people say, oh, I go in the sun and I feel good. And everyone says, oh, but you can't go in the sun because you're killing yourself. It's like, oh, I mean, I started reading books about before antibiotics existed. They used sunlight as a, as a way of killing bacteria. So people with TB went into solariums. They sat in the sun and, and, it, and, it, and the benefits were huge. Um, but we've, we've kind of got rid of sunlight as a cure of anything and it's um, because we're terrified of the damn thing. So uh, what everyone's heard of is obviously the one that sunlight increases the synthesis of vitamin D in your skin. Yes. And vitamin D has all sorts of benefits all over the place. It's an anti-cancer. Um, um, uh, well, it's an anti-cancer vitamin. It's not really a vitamin, it's a hormone. It, you know, it's an, it, it's a, it, it stimulates your immune response. So one of the things that you know you find is that, that that people who have got higher vitamin D levels are more likely to fight off COVID, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's just it's just a, a, a wonder substance in your body, and and then we we and ironically, of course, it's it's synthesized from cholesterol. <laughs> That's mm. the basic basic molecule from which vitamin D is synthesized. Okay, so the first head scratchers that everybody now has understood is. Salt is medicine. Yeah. Iodized salt is actually fine because iodine, we're all, many of us are iodine deficient. That's yeah. what causes thyroid issues with women when they get older, lack of iodine. But even mineral salts, the Himalayans and the uh, Dead Sea salts, those are all good too because they've got other minerals in them, maybe less iodine. And then sun is medicine. For sure, sun is medicine. But you also brought up a third one that was just kind of shocking i've never read anywhere heard anywhere it's not in any literature it's breathe through your nose for more nitric oxide breathe yeah. through your nose wow yeah, yeah well i heard this one and i thought this sounds like rubbish <laughs> it just breathe through your nose to get more nitric oxide i mean where does that come from uh and then i started reading about it and you know what if you breathe through your nose the nasal cavities synthesize nitric oxide that you then breathe into your lungs and they act in many different ways some of that goes into your bloodstream and has good effects on your, your cardiovascular system. It's also a really potent antibacterial and antiviral substance. Your immune system, one of your key parts of your immune system, I think, called macrophages, which are white blood cells. Amazing little beasts. 
you know, flying around over the place. They kill bacteria and viruses by firing nitric oxide bursts at them to destroy them. So nitric oxide is enormously effective at getting rid of, of viruses and bacteria. So if you breathe through your nose and you produce more nitric oxide, your lungs are now bathed with nitric oxide and, uh, and you get less infections and you get less heart disease and you're just generally so much better off. And it sounds like utter rubbish. It sounds like sort of, you know, hippie chanting, where daisies in your hair rubbish, but it's actually, there is, go and look it up, guys. You know, I didn't make this up. I thought this was rubbish. Then I looked it up. I thought, this isn't rubbish. This is absolutely true. And it seems unbelievable, but it's true. Yeah. You, you have some sad prescriptions in there. One of them is high intensity, 10 minute intervals with three to four times a week is just as good as pretty much any other kind of exercise because it yep. depletes the glucose stores. Now you mentioned in your book, and this was fascinating, that a thousand of the glucogen storage of calories are stored in our livers and the 500 is in the rest of us, which is mostly in our brain, but it's throughout our blood system too. So what you're saying is deplete the glucose with these high intensity burpees or these interval training is what I do around tracks. Yeah. Um, and that's really going to give us optimal heart health as well, correct? Well, that's right. I mean, your body, well, slightly the wrong around there. The liver can store about 600, 500, 600 kilocalories of what we really call calories of glycogen, which is basically glucose. It's just like glucose molecules stuck down there and they're called glycogen. Um, and, and you can store about 1,000 calories of that in your, in your muscles and some elsewhere. Whilst when those stores are full, then, then, um, then obviously there's nowhere for glucose to go and the insulin has to start driving it harder and harder and transforming glucose into fat, which then is sent out from the liver to your body. And this is why you get fatty liver if you, have, if you have insulin resistance and too much carbohydrates. If you do high intensity exercise, so low intensity exercise, like going for a jog or a walk, that's good. I'm not knocking it in any way, shape, or form. But it uses up fatty acids, fats, because that is that that's the most efficient energy storage. But if you do high intensity exercise, you go to anaerobic energy, you get about one sixteenth of the amount of energy out of an anaerobically metabolized glucose molecule as you do out of one fatty acid. So so you're actually burning up energy pretty quickly. I mean, some of it's reconstructed, but basically we're not very good. Uh, we're very good at exercising at low intensity because our metabolic system deals with that. At high intensity, we move into anaerobic um, world where we're burning up glucose directly. All of your stores get emptied out. And then you're in a situation where your insulin resistance, which drives a lot of the metabolic problems, is, is flattened, it's knocked on the head. So the high intensity exercise, quite short term high intensity exercise, if you have problems with your blood sugar level, that's the way to go. Do not go out for walk, well, go out for walks as well. But you need to do this burst energy stuff in order to basically clear the stores of glucose and glycogen out of your system. And then, then they're empty and then there's a chance. They can be filled up again. So you just burst energy at them again and they're gone. So this is how to do it from an exercise perspective. So the, that's not bad news and happy news, but the next one I'm sad to say is I've been intermittent fasting now for four or five months and it's worked beautifully to lose 20 pounds or more. But I've also learned that I've been sabotaging myself by drinking alcohol. Talk about the alcohol sabotage effect on intermittent fasting. No, I hate to say it. Yeah. A scotch whiskey in the evening, but uh, the body has a sort of hierarchy of usage. 
because alcohol is obviously made from sugar. That's what fermentation is. Right? Glucose turns into, into, into alcohol molecules. Our body wants to get rid of the alcohol first and uses it as an energy store first. So if you have alcohol on board, then the body will, will be using that and it will not be using any of the sugar stores. And it will definitely not be using any of the fatty acid stores, which is kind of like your deep energy store, but like a hybrid car, you've got the electric bit and you've got the petrol bit. If you never come off the electric, then the petrol is never going to be used up. But if you never come off the alcohol, and that can take hours to be, to be broken down and used for energy, you're not even going to get into your glucose stores. If you don't get into your glucose stores, you're definitely not going to be getting into your fat stores. So losing weight, losing fat, is, is becomes virtually impossible, unfortunately. Heartbreaking, but good. There's one thing you left out of your book, I think you talked about it, but it's just touched on Dr. Kendrick is, and I feel like I'm sanding the spot on Mount Rushmore's nose. It's not a big deal because you, you know, it is important, but I looked at blood moving heavily hydrated versus not hydrated under a microscope. And I saw that it moves like sludge without hydration, but when it's properly hydrated or optimally hydrated, the blood looks beautiful. It's smooth like a river Mississippi. So you don't talk about hydration much in your book. Can you address that now, the importance of that? Well, uh, I had to decide how long the book was going to be and how important the thing was. I mean, nowadays, everyone's still hydrated. You go to the gym, it's like a queue of 50 people to fill up their water bottles. And I say, look at them and think, how much water can you possibly be sweating out? Anyway, but yes, hydration is important. If, you're, if you are dehydrated, your blood is more likely to clot. Well, 75% of Americans apparently are chronically dehydrated in that. Well, well I, I, I hold my hands up. Yeah. Uh, I, I am, I just didn't, well, you're right. Hydration, correct hydration, having enough, um, you know, fluid and, and uh, your blood, yeah, it flows better. I agree entirely because I mean, we know that if you become dehydrated on a, on a, on an airline, which happens, and people drink alcohol in airline, which means they, they, they become more dehydrated. And then the lower uh, oxygen pressure means that you lose more fluid. People become dehydrated and then they develop blood clots, not in their arteries, but in their veins. Yes. And these, these, are, the, these are the deep, deep vein thrombosis ones that can then break off and go into your lungs. So you are absolutely right. Okay. That, that, that correct hydration is very important. Tell that I to my girlfriend. Really just, tell, tell my girlfriend to say those words often. Okay, this one's an important one. We all want to know what kind of diet because there's a thousand diets out there and it's terribly confusing. But with, forget the word diet and let's talk about let's tend towards low carb food intake because, gosh, your book showed that undoubtedly diabetes drops 93% and insulin use drops 46% in every low carb, well, in the low carb studies most recent, which is backed up by Verta Health is doing on one of our recent shows. We had Frank Dumont, their medical director, and he said the same thing. They're just using evidence to get the carbs down and they're reducing and eliminating diabetes and insulin in over 90% of their patients over a five-year study that they're coming out with in a couple of weeks here. Yeah. But uh, it works. Low carb works. Well, well of course it works because it's it, it, it fits the physiologic, the human physiology says it works. It has to work. Once you understand that, it's like, yeah. I mean, some people could eat. My son is, is struggles to put on weight. He's 28, the, the little swine. And he, um, he, he, he struggles to eat enough. And he stuffs himself with carbohydrates. And I keep saying to him, just wait till you're my age. <laughs> it, will, it will reverse, you little swine. <laughs> but at the moment, he can deal with it. 
And some people can deal with them fine, there's no problem. But a okay. lot of people cannot, and they start to run into this problem of filling themselves up with carbohydrates, filling up their glucose and glycogen stores. Then the metabolic system starts to struggle to deal with it. Your insulin goes up, your blood sugar goes up, the whole thing goes kiboshed. You know, and if you are one of those people, and there's probably, I don't know, 40%, it's quite a large proportion of people really are not, you know, they'll, they'll go diabetic and they'll go high blood sugar if they eat too many carbohydrates and they don't do anything else. You know, if they go out for a run a marathon three times a week or, or do heavy work in the gym, they're probably all right again. So it's not yes. an absolute that this happens. To add to the confusion, the guidance for older folks seems to be don't take those baby aspirin anymore, stop it. But you say that the baby aspirin stop the platelet stickiness, especially as we age, and stickiness is sort of a uh, progenitor for the thrombogenesis hypothesis. Uh, well, it's it, the evidence here waffles back and forth. It's not a huge advantage taking aspirin or baby aspirin. I would say that there are certain conditions that if you've got, it's definitely worth thinking about. There's a condition called antiphospholipid syndrome, huge syndrome, where your blood is much more likely to clot. And these people are told, they're advised to take aspirin to prevent this happening. Um, for the average person, I mean, aspirin also causes increased risk of bleeding. It has downsides. So you're balancing things all the time. I would say is if you do other healthy things, you know, if you take exercise, you go in the sun, blah, blah, blah. You don't need to take it probably. Um, if you previously had blockages and clottages and you've been found to have blood clotting issues, then I would take it. Okay, my favorite recommendation by far in your book, like the book starts singing the hallelujah chorus when I turn to this page, is to replace statins with Viagra. It's five to six times more effective than the statins. Yeah, well, of course, the irony is that statins, and you know, you speak to most doctors who are completely unaware of this, statins actually increase nitric oxide synthesis in the endothelium. Uh, it's through a complex mechanism that they do it. So then my belief, uh, is that any benefit they have on cardiovascular disease, and they do have some benefit, although it's less than people like to say it is, um, is due to this nitric oxide synthesis benefit. But of course, Viagra, Sildenafil, was designed to increase nitric oxide synthesis. And, and, and it started life as an anti-angina drug, as a cardiovascular drug. It was only when the volunteers of the trials refused to hand it back that um, and they said, why are you keeping hold of it? No one ever keeps hold of the drugs in the clinical trial. Uh, and they did. And they said, oh, right. And then they found out that it causes uh, erections because it increases nitric oxide synthesis, specifically in, in the penis. Or more specifically in the penis, obviously does it elsewhere as well. And that, that was, was how it happened. And then uh, the studies were done in Manchester, very close to where I am, where they looked at people who'd had heart attacks and had diabetes who took Viagra versus those who had the heart attacks and Viagra, uh, diabetes, but not taking Viagra. And the, 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 um, the benefit on, on, um, on a future heart attacks was, was, was quite astonishingly huge. I mean, there was a big confounder there because probably the people who were still having sex may have been the people who were still a bit, felt a bit healthier in the first place, a bit friskier to start with. Yeah, I'm going to take well, a little bit of a break from the recommendations so I can tell you a conversation I had with a cardiologist yesterday morning. This is a teacher of cardiology here in San Antonio, Texas, and he got nervous when I asked him two questions, and none of them were in your book, but I just, I said, tell me what is the risk factor where we need to start taking statins, 
And he says, if your risk factor is 7.5% or higher over 10 years, take a statin. And I said, tell me the risk factors. And he listed them all out for me, which are all in your book. And when he listed them, I said, with my next two questions, that's where he got nervous. I said, so let me ask you, none of your risk factors have anything to do with what I eat, what I hydrate with, how I exercise, how I sleep, or how I handle stress. None of those are in your risk factors. And he, that's when he kind of shut down and gave me a different answer to that question. It just blew my mind that <laughs> none of the risk factors have anything to do with those obvious health inducers, correct? No, absolutely right. I mean, it is. It's, um, it's just, I mean, this thing, it's the, I did write about it in the previous book, is the, the, the risk calculator that says, what's your risk of having a heart, a cardiovascular event in the next 10 years? And if it's greater than in America, it's 7.5%, then you should start on a statin, which means that if you're a man and you're age 50 or above, even if you have no other risk factors, you should start on a statin. It's completely bonkers. In the, in, in the United Kingdom, the risk has been set at 10%, which is slightly higher. It just means that when you're 56, you have to start on a statin. Because by far the strongest, most potent risk factor for heart disease in, in the risk calculations that they have is age. So basically, you're just saying as you get older, you're more at risk of dying of heart disease. So you should take a statin. Yeah, but but why are you more at risk as you get older? We have no idea. We we know it. We just know that you do. So take a statin anyway. The second question he got nervous at Dr. Kendrick is when I said 100 people need statins, and for one person to get a five-year benefit, that's what I read in the literature. I said so. 100 people need to take statins for one person to get a five-year prolonged life, and he gave me some nervous laughter and, and a non-answer basically and he changed the subject yeah. so i didn't even go into what's in your book your, your book is so deep and so wide and so it goes into the history in other words you're not alone in this hypothesis you're in a, a nice scout group with a lot of other brilliant oh, doctors oh, and, yeah i'm in a gang of all the intelligent people i'm just there inside <laughs> <laughs> the reasonable people <laughs> the reasonable people yeah. we are the reasonable ones and um yeah i mean it is it is really i mean i, I use another statistic which is and this is not not my not my work, although I did do it separately. Um, if you take a statin for using the evidence in a clinical trial, if you have no pre-existing heart disease, and you take a statin for five years, your your average increase in life expectancy is three point one days. Wow! And um, which is 0.6 of a day per year of taking a statin. Now, whether you believe that's this or not, and I'm not entirely sure I do, but that is the the, the, the totality of the benefit. You can present benefits in all sorts of different ways. Yes. You can say, well, 100 people have to take it for, and 99 will get no benefit, and one might. But I think the question there is, but you know, when, when we look at other drugs, like in cancer, you don't say 99 people will get no benefit from this cancer drug, but one might. Um, mm -hmm. What we say is the average increase in survival time is six months if you take it for two years. And we don't know which person is going to get that in it. It's a complicated thing. Well, and you wrote a whole book about statistics and the oh. lying of statistics and the clinical trial games that are played with relative risk and absolute oh. risk. I mean, it's just a whole, that's a whole nother interview for another time. Yeah, well, it is. It's a real page turner. <laughs> <laughs> is, your, is your life not boring enough yet? I'll tell you about so y'all. This I'm telling y'all if y'all want to get into the why he said three days, the book goes into the uh, actuarial reasons why that adds three days to your life if you're, you know, a certain age. But yeah, yeah. Um, let, let's shift, shift subjects and talk for a minute about women's heart health. It's no different from men. They just die 10 years later, it seems. But it also seems that they're dying of a different type of cardiovascular disease. 
Yeah, it is um, interesting. Uh, the, 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 the difference between men and women with cardiovascular disease is a fascinating subject. All of itself. I didn't really get into that usually in the book because boy, it opens up. Uh, it, it's just huge. But, um, but, but um, you know, one of the things is, of course, if a woman has a heart, a myocardial infarction, a heart attack, doesn't tend to get the same symptoms as a man. Men tend to get more pain. Women just don't seem to get so much of that pain, which is why they're less diagnosed as having had a heart attack, if you want, and it's missed. And yet women are more likely to get a thing called Takotsubo syndrome, which is broken heart syndrome, which is increased stress causes the heart to sort of start malfunctioning and ends up in the shape of an octopus pot, i.e. a Takotsubo, which is why it's called that. It's a Japanese word. And that's different. And yes, the way that they, I mean, the underlying disease is kind of the same, but the way it presents and the way it operates it's kind of different. And my own belief on this is that, um, uh, is that women respond differently to, to stressors than men. And the way that they react to stress is different. Uh, men are kind of hunter-gatherers and you, you, they, they have this very, very primeval kind of response of fight or flight, which really triggers off, which, which also one of the things that does is raises your LDL level if you stress people. Um, but women don't have quite that that same response. So it's, but that's cultural as well. I mean, these are not necessarily physiological differences. So it is a, it's a complicated area. Um, and I don't, I, I, I am not yet capable of saying, I can fully explain to you why men and women have very different rates of cardiovascular disease um, at the same age. Yes, and you're right, women lag behind men, but the way that they present and the conditions that they've got are slightly different. Yeah, but it's funny, all the statin research early was done on that reason for the beginning of the massive sale of this was based on men, not on women who, again, present a different way. But let's, yeah. let's not go there since you said that's, that's a giant chasm. Um, get back to the what we should eat. And there's four or five more I want to talk about that are in your book. Again, we last talked about Viagra. Yes, statins, not necessarily. High potassium foods like banana, spinach, and broccoli, uh, and folic acid, B6, B12, are, are just great for brain health and also for the cardiovascular system. Can you explain yeah, those? Absolutely, yeah. Well, the potassium one is interesting. I mean, if you look at, apparently hunter-gatherers have a, have a ratio of, I can't remember what's up on my head, it's like six to one potassium to, to sodium intake. And that's just almost, it's completely different. And, and, and potassium has heart protection benefits, which are complicated to get into. But essentially, you have to have the correct balance between sodium and potassium. And what we should not be doing is reducing sodium. What we should be doing is increasing potassium. And potassium intake is really important for heart health, things like arrhythmias, of course, but also how the whole function of the body works. Your whole body works because sodium and potassium are pumped in and out of cells. And if you get that ratio wrong, it stops working. It's just vitally important. And it, it, you, you know, we, we're ignoring this. I mean, there are studies done and you can see them. And, and I mentioned them in the book right there. The people who are given more potassium have, you know, their blood pressure drops more than people who reduce their sodium. Even if you believe that effect is huge. And yet even given that, they go, oh no, we must reduce sodium. But if you reduce sodium, you cause all sorts of problems downstream in the body that you don't want to have happen. So yes. Potassium, good stuff. 
Okay, you want to get a good boost of energy, go get yourself a B12 shot, but better take regular folic acid, B6, B12, for yeah. not only brain yeah. health, but overall health. Well, I mean, this is, uh, I didn't put, I had it in the book and took it out, um, just because it was yet another area that I need to spend about 30 pages discussing. Um, the, the study done in Cambridge in the UK, where they found people at early stages of Alzheimer's disease, and they gave them high doses of, I keep forgetting which of the B vitamins it was, I have to go and look it up. I think it was it was it was twelve. No, it was nine. No, it was nine, three, and six. I think. And um, and what they found was this prevented brain shrinkage over the next two years, and and, and actually the, the the their cognitive capacity improved. And then along came a big meta-analysis from my favourite people in Oxford that said we looked at this and we found there was no benefit to B vitamins. Now that meta-analysis was just. I ripped it to shreds and I will rip it to shreds again in the near future. It was just the most ridiculous thing I've ever read. But the problem is that that, that sort of thing then tends to stop research dead in its tracks. The reality is that we need these vitamins for our brain health, much as our heart health as well. Thiamine is important for both. And yet now we're, you know, unfortunately on one side we have a huge pharmaceutical industry that wants people to have nothing to do with vitamin supplementation and they squash it and attack it and denigrate it and call people who believe in vitamins woo woo whatever they are as if yeah. we don't understand science this is just nonsense yes if you have a really good healthy natural diet full of all sorts of things that fall from the trees and animals that run around and whatever you probably don't need any of these things but increasingly in our environment a lot of people come to lack these vitamins i mean people talk about it was a in the book, I talk about magnesium. You know, magnesium, well, nobody needs magnesium. Well, in, in, in Israel, they, they use desalination plants for most of the water supply. Takes all the magnesium out of the water. So they took it out of the water. Yeah. And they reckon that their estimate was 5,000 people a year were dying due to magnesium deficiency from cardiovascular disease in, 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 in Israel. And that's a population of, of, uh, of, I think it's 8 million. Well, that would be the equivalent of 150,000 people die in the States every year. So this is not a minor problem. And yet no one talks about it. It's an absolutely essential mineral. Is that a mineral? Or, or is yeah, it? Close enough. And, 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 and it's just like dismissed. Well, they, they had to put it back into the water in Israel because people were dying. So when I was running marathons 20 years ago, glucosamine and chondroitin were the two go-tos to reduce joint pain, but they didn't work for that. I have read in your book that uh, they lower CBD risk by 15%. Well, they can't well do. I mean, when you're talking about arterial damage, you're talking about endothelial cells and endothelial cells are protected by a, a sort of framework filament layer called glycocalyx, which doctors have never heard of. Ask your, ask your cardiologist, probably doesn't even know what it is. And this is hugely important for the health of the underlying endothelial cell. And it's made up of various amino acids and, and proteins one of which is chondroitin, and another which is hyaluron, and, and, and there's others in there, but they're the two main ones. So there's evidence that if you provide these proteins, they are then put into albumin, which is a protein complex. It's made in the liver, which floats around. There's tons of it in your bloodstream. It sticks in the glycocalyx layer and nurtures and feeds the glycocalyx. And this is stuff that, you know, it's, it's, this is absolute basic science, and yet, Cardiologists, doctors that you can speak to, they've never heard of any of these things. 
So when someone says, oh, chondroitin, how the hell can that prevent or protect against heart disease? You go, well, it, you, don't understand, you don't even understand what you're talking about. Here, do you? You've never <laughs> even the, heard of the glycocalyx. So how can yeah, you have a discussion yeah. with me? I think of the glycocalyx after reading your book as the fur coat inside the endothelial layer. So fur it's the, coat inside the end. Why not? Yes. Yeah, nice and cozy and cuddly. And it protects your endothelium. And, mm -hmm. and, and I can't, I've never yet spoken to a doctor that's even heard of it. It's like, <laughs> and then they're trying to tell me they understand cardiovascular disease again. Okay, so you talk about CoQ10. Let's talk about also L-citrulline and L-arginine as supplements, which I'd never heard of before this book. No, no, well, L-arginine, that came from the guy who first discovered it, invented, um, and, and didn't invent it, but the man who first dis invent discovered that your arteries were full of, um, were full of nitric oxide and how beneficial it was, um, then realized that the, the co- it's made from it's made from nitric oxide synthase, and it needs arginine, which is a which is an amino acid, and it needs that in order as a cofactor, and it makes nitric oxide from it, and it circles around. L arginine is then converted to L citrulline. L citrulline is then converted back to L arginine, and this drives the nitric oxide synthesis, which also happens in the glycocalyx, by the way. And if you increase arginine um, intake, then and you get more nitric oxide synthesis. I mean, you can get more nitric oxide synthesis if you eat beetroot as well, because, mm. because that's got nitrates in it. So you need the nitrate, and you need the arginine. You need the nitric oxide synthesis, and then you've got lots of nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is the single most important chemical for your cardiovascular health. So L-arginine, and L if you have lots of L-arginine in it, and then you take L-citrulline, L-citrulline, stops the L-arginine from being deposited out of the system because the L-citrulline can then be reconverted back into L-arginine. And, and, and this is just basic basic biochemistry that, again, I've never, ever met a doctor that's ever even heard of it. Well, I'm going to start eating more dark chocolate, drink a little bit more red wine, yes. uh, eat more beets and garlic and fresh greens like broccoli and kale because apparently they're all rich in those two substances. Well, they are rich in it, and then they increase your nitric oxide synthesis. So... Mm -hmm. You know, it's not rocket science, this. It's just basic stuff. But, you know, doctors aren't taught this. Medics are not taught nutrition. They're not taught any of these things. I mean, I had to go and find all this stuff for myself, which is really tedious because I don't know where to find it usually. Okay, we're going to shift gears and talk about COVID and just, and then we'll say thank you for your time. Uh, okay. Which you've been very generous with that. COVID is a blood disease and is all about clots. Can you talk about... It's not a uh, lung disease as much as it is a blood disease. Can you talk well, about how it... It, it, it? It's both, but it's more of a cardiovascular disease. I mean, COVID, as we found on the SARS-CoV-2 virus, it, it needs to link to a thing called an ACE2 receptor um, in order to get into a cell. Yeah, if you have no ACE2 receptors, the virus can't get in. So cells that have this ACE2 receptor are, are, are infectable. Um, and the lungs are actually... Well, what's an ACE2 receptor? It's to do with the, called the angiotensin system. Um, which is also called the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone uh, system, which is what controls your blood pressure, and it's all very complicated. And it, it's to do with hormones released in your kidneys and renin and blah, blah, blah. But just remember that the cardiovascular system, is this is a really key part of it. So it's not surprising. And the ACE2 um, receptors are spread around the cardiovascular system. They're spread into your kidneys. And they're in the lungs because the conversion of what's called angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2 happens in your lungs. I have no idea why, that's where it happens. It seems a strange place for it to happen, but it does. 
So your lungs are, are infectable. So when people get infected with COVID, the first thing that gets hit is your lungs. But then it gets out of the lungs and it goes into the blood vessels. And the endothelial cells all have lots of ACE2 receptors. So the virus can get into your endothelial cells. The virus gets into your endothelial cells and it replicates in there. And then the cells send out a thing saying, I've been infected to the immune system. Please come and kill me. The immune system goes, yep, no problem. Arrives. And this is when you get this little bit of a cytokine storm. Cytokines are things released, chemical messengers, into the bloodstream saying, I'm infected. In this case, come and kill me. So the immune system revs itself up, starts killing off endothelial cells. Well, surprise, surprise, this causes blood clotting. And you mentioned also the uh, Ebola is sort of the extreme example of that. You get bloodshot eyes and you start bleeding in your gums and then eventually everything falls apart with Ebola. Uh, it, it's, it's all the same. No, it's not quite yeah. exactly. These things are all subtly different. So okay. obviously my concern, I mean, I was, I was writing about vasculitis and Kawasaki disease when SARS-CoV-2 arrived. It was like, everyone's going, how could it cause blood clots? And I'm going, well, it has to cause blood clots because this is what it does. Uh, anyway, the, the, you know, of course, the problem I, I then saw was well, we've got the vaccine, which is mRNA um, vaccine, which is then designed to go into cells and make them make um, spike proteins, which the immune system is going to say, I must attack and kill this. But there was always potential that those cells, that the, 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 the mRNA would not, would not stay in the muscle, which, of course, it doesn't. It would get around the body, it would get into endothelial cells, into heart cells, which express an awful lot of ACE2 receptors, and that the body would say, the immune system would start attacking the body, around the whole body in the vascular system. And, and that was always an issue that I thought we have to be very careful about. I mean, everyone said, oh, we can't, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this. And, and you know, it's worth having, it's definitely worth having the infection for causing blood clots. Yeah, let's talk about the vaccine because it's there's some scary and disappointing news coming out in the last 90 days about embalmers and funeral homes. And you're nodding your head. I guess you've heard this already, that these gigantic, long, earthworm-looking blood clots are forming in the legs, in the arteries, wow. after the booster shot. What the heck is going on there? They've never seen it before. People have been doing embalming 10, 20, 30 years are saying it's 40 to 90% of their young patients are dying of these blood clots. Well, the spike protein... Is, is pro-coagulant. It triggers the immune system. I mean, if you go back in history to when we were just little double-celled whatever we were, so the immune system and the clotting system were the same thing. It was the same, it was the same thing, the mechanism. So what happened was that, that the blood clotting system sort of sealed off the infective agents. And, and of course they became, over the, a billion years, they became different. But when you trigger the immune system, you trigger the blood clotting system at the same time. This is known. And, um, and so if you, start, if you start firing up the immune system too high, you know, this is, this is always what they used to say years ago. If you have a cold, don't exercise because you could have a heart attack. This, this actually happens to be true. Because if your immune system is fired up for whatever reason, the blood clotting system is fired up as well. These two systems operate together and in fact you know so therefore yes if you're getting an excess immune response to to a vaccine or, or a virus or anything that in, gets into your body you're more likely to see the development of, of blood clots this is this is again this is just basic science this is you know not although you know i'll give you i'll give you the the building blocks of of the answer 
and they're all inarguable. And yet people argue the answer. So pyocarditis, myocarditis for athletes that are collapsing on the field, same thing? Well, I think it's happening. And I think it, I predicted it would happen um, in uh, mid-2020, that this could be a adverse effect of it. And I was, of course, fact-checked and told I was talking rubbish. Is it a major, major, major problem? I, I, I have to say I don't know. There, there is no doubt that, um, that, that there is, is a very strong um, move to ensure that no one must criticize vaccines in any way. And I would say, is, well, surely you want these things to be as beneficial with as few adverse effects as possible. So you, you have to look at these things and you have to be honest about these things. And if there is a problem being created here, then we have to know if it's true. We can't just have people saying, oh, don't worry, it's worse if you get COVID. And, oh, actually, this we can't tell whether it's associated with vaccination and blah, blah, blah. You know, of course, you can't tell for sure in any individual case. But but even the, the Journal of the American Medical Association for, you know, wrote, wrote an article showing that myocarditis was increased considerably post-vaccination in younger people. You know, factors of 53-fold, I think is the top of my head. And that, that moves beyond just, well, you, you know, a one-off thing. That, 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 that's a thing that's happening. And, and you could predict that that may happen from understanding what, what's going on. And so I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm not an anti, well, it's the trouble is the moment you criticize anything about vaccines, you're an anti-vaxxer. The moment you raise your finger and say, but shouldn't we be looking at this? You, you, you get your finger cut off. So it is a very difficult subject to discuss. But, but we, it doesn't mean that, that makes it more important that it, that it is discussed. I'm not an expert in this area. I just happen to be looking at, you know, infectious diseases causing blood clotting at the same time as the COVID pandemic arrived. And, and, and so I was already switched on to the whole clotting, immune system, proteins, cytokine uh, stuff. So, so it was like it was a bit like I was, I felt a bit like the one eyed man in the land of the blind at that time because to me it was bloody obvious what was going on dr kennedy this has been amazing and fascinating to respect your time i'm going to let us sign off with a couple final questions we have here but what a deep and wide and fascinating subject and this book the clot dickens my favorite book of the last 12 months for sure not just because it's deep and scientific and well-cited um, and it goes into every kind of medicine study that you could think of, but it also is a funny, it's a hoot. And it's because Dr. Kendrick has got just that sensibility. So he makes it, he takes you through it very nicely. So my final two questions are, how do people find you if they want to find you or your book or your blog? What's the best way to reach out to you? Well, if you're from the pharmaceutical industry, I live in uh, Taiwan. <laughs> um, um, I do a blog, obviously, called Malcolm, drmalcolmkendrick.org. Um, uh, obviously, I've written the various books. If you go into the blog, you can find the books. I prefer people bought the books from there because then the publisher gets um, gets a larger percentage than they do if it's sold through to a, through a company that sounds like a large river in South America. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's kind of it. I do I do. I mean, if you go onto the internet and type me in, there's various times where I've appeared on various interviews and spoken and, and, and talked about this stuff. So, you know, I just try and get the message out and I hope that we can have a, a good debate about this. I'd like a good debate. I don't just like people running away and saying that man's an idiot, but there we are. And if you could fly a banner over the world with one single message, what Dr. Kendrick would that message be? 
question everything. Got it. It's a very good one. Thank you again. And I just can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to this and have enjoyed this so much. And I, I'm sure our listeners are going to get a lot of benefits from this. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.